Good morning. I uh, was sick like well over a week ago now, and this cough just won't go away. And I thought to myself this morning, uh, well, I won't sing to try to preserve my voice. And uh, then we do How Firm a Foundation, which is definitely my favorite hymn. And I would, I mean, I know musically not everybody loves How Firm a Foundation, but I would challenge you to find a hymn that so perfectly combines like things that are true in Scripture with things that our souls often need to hear. Uh, and I don't think that you would find a hymn that does it as well. But this morning, uh, we're going to go back into Acts chapter 12, and uh, very much... Uh, what we're going to talk about this week builds on what we talked about uh, last week with Peter's miraculous salvation uh, from uh, the clutches of Herod. Uh, uh, as, we, as we see, there's uh, kind of a flow in the story where uh, very much uh, the, the first half of the text, what we covered last week, I think uh, the importance of prayer first and the second the power of God to save are uh, absolutely evident and then uh, in this second half of the chapter really some of the effects of God's deliverance are evident so I'm going to read uh, the text with you and then think through some of those things if you'd open your Bible to Acts chapter 12 beginning in verse 12 we read when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we 
thank you, Lord, that we can worship you together this morning, that we can celebrate the truths of Scripture, that we can uh, reinforce them to one another in song. Lord, we pray that as we uh, dwell on these things, God, as our hearts meditate on the truth that you have delivered to us, Lord, we would be, uh, as Adam said, strengthened in the midst of trial, God, that you would uh, prompt joy, uh, even where there is disquiet, Lord, that uh, the peace and the hope of Christ would be uh, anchors for our soul. Uh, God, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, God, that you would expose to us the dark corners of our hearts, and that we would see ourselves uh, clearly and rightly, God, that we would not shy away from confronting our own sin, that, God, we would readily repent of it and turn towards you again in faith, God, knowing that in Christ uh, you have paid the penalty for our sin, God, and you are calling us to turn from it and to live as Christ lived uh, in a selfless dependency upon you and your power. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory and in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, as I said, uh, Peter is arrested. Uh, we talked about Herod last week, and we could, the text kind of ends with Herod today. Uh, Herod decides that he is uh, going to... Uh, achieve some political gain by opposing the church, uh, murders James the Apostle, uh, arrests Peter with the intention to do the same. The church is uh, praying earnestly, he says, for, Luke says, for uh, the deliverance of Peter, yet the situation looks absolutely impossible, that there is no way that Peter can escape the situation he's in, and yet God miraculously and through a series uh, of interventions, uh, leads to Peter's escape. Uh, Peter, recognizing uh, in the process of being saved that he is being saved, right? The, the intervention is so incredible. God's intervention is so incredible. Peter doesn't even quite know if it's real at first, but out on the street, uh, safely out of prison, he recognizes that God has been delivered, and then uh, you know, slipping into uh, spy mode. He makes his way through the streets of Jerusalem and to a house uh, with the way our text ends today. Uh, it, you know, at some point in the night, uh, apparently Herod and uh, the soldiers of Herod began actively searching for Peter and, and Peter's truly trying to keep a very low profile, but he makes it to uh, the house of Mary, the mother of John, uh, who is also called Mark, right? Uh, and we'll get to know uh, John Mark better. He'll fold back into the story of uh, Paul and Barnabas prominently for a minute. Uh, but for now, uh, the Christians, or some of the Christians of the Jerusalem church, are uh, gathered at Mary's house. We don't really know much about this Mary other than she is apparently a woman of means, uh, the way her house is structured. Uh, 
would indicate that she has a substantial amount of money and that she has opened this home for Christians to gather and pray together. And so Peter makes his way back to Mary's house. Uh, the believers are there still earnestly praying. And uh, I, don't, I would definitely not say this is really the point of the text today, but I feel like it's a, an important enough point that I'd, I'd like to make it uh, two weeks in a row. Like, everything about chapter 12, I think, would indicate to a church that prayer is absolutely vital to the life of a church, right? I said last week, say again, like, the church in the midst of this has given themselves over to prayer entirely. They recognize their dependence on the Lord. They recognize that what needs to be done can only be done by the Lord. And as the story develops, like, we'll, realize, we'll see, I think, that these people praying uh, understand that what they're praying for is an unbelievable ask. Like, it, it's difficult to believe that this could happen, yet they're praying for the Lord to do something incredible. And absolutely, I think, uh, more and more, uh, this should be one of the things that characterizes us as a body, that corporately we give ourselves to prayer, wholly recognizing our dependence on the Lord uh, in all things. And, and not just uh, that we give ourselves to prayer, but that we encourage one another towards prayer. And so to that end... <laughs> Uh, in February, I believe, Pastor George will be starting a Sunday school on prayer, uh, which encourage everyone to go. Uh, he very much uh, wants to uh, contribute to this by helping us uh, more uh, clearly develop a theology of prayer. And uh, additionally, uh, I think for our sake, but also uh, for the sake of our community, uh, you'll find outside on the table in the foyer this card. Uh, it just says we are praying for you and then uh, invites people to share a prayer request uh, if they'd like. And uh, very much encourage everyone to, to start, uh, if you're not already, praying for at least one neighbor. And uh, if the Lord leads, let them know. Put the door hanger on their door. Or tell them that you are. Uh, that I think for us, uh, it can be helpful to to make that commitment, to tell someone that we've made that commitment, and then to keep that commitment. But I think uh, potentially also it's uh, helpful for the sake of our neighbors if they understand that we are praying people who care deeply enough about them to pray for them. But uh, back to the text, uh, when Peter makes it to Mary's house, uh, he knocks on the door, you know, and like, imagine the situation. You've just escaped from prison. Uh, you're looking down the street, making sure there's no guards coming, right? Like, you're, you're trying very much to uh, keep a low profile, and you don't want to bang on the door in the middle of the night because, like, uh, you know, like you don't want to draw attention to yourself, but you also want to get the attention of the people inside because you want to get off the street as quickly as possible. So Peter's standing there knocking, and Rhoda comes to the door to the outer gate, 
so uh, she has to open this gate to get Peter off of the street and into the courtyard of the home. And when uh, she hears Peter, she immediately recognizes that it's him, which would probably indicate that the church regularly gathers at the house of Mary, and Peter's been there uh, many times before. But she's so excited and so uh, disbelieving, uh, like she can't believe that it's actually Peter. She's in jail, everybody's inside praying for her. This is an absolutely unbelievable miracle, and in her excitement... <laughs> She runs uh, inside to let everyone uh, know what is happening and leaves Peter standing on the street. And I think, uh, you know, there is an element of humor here. I think Luke wants us to recognize the element of uh, humor, like that, that this is a spectacular miracle, like that, uh, that she can't believe what is happening. And uh, it's not just her that is... Uh, unable, even as they're praying for God to miraculously intervene, to believe that God has miraculously intervened. Right? When she gets inside, uh, the people inside have, uh, oops, I'm sorry, have a similar reaction, uh, disbelief, but it looks very different. They say she's absolutely crazy. Like, there's no way that what you're saying is true is true, uh, but she won't stop saying it, and so they tell her, well, it's his angel. And uh, that, I guess, prompts an interesting tangent, but uh, before we get down to what is, it is his angel, uh, right, like the situation is that Peter's stuck out on the street, still, you know, making sure the guards aren't coming, People inside apparently are arguing about whether or not Peter is actually on the street. Like the whole scene uh, really communicates, I think, that uh, even as these people are praying for God to do something that only God can do, it's difficult for them to imagine that God has done it. And when they say it is his angel, probably... Uh, what it's difficult to know exactly what they're thinking about this because uh, there isn't a lot of, uh, there isn't a lot in Jewish writing uh, that would indicate exactly what people at the time of Jesus thought about like a guardian angel. But not long after this, uh, there are several rabbis that indicate that uh, a person has like an assigned guardian angel that has the appearance of the person that they're assigned to, and that when a person dies, uh, like their angel is apparent for a, a season. Or uh, I guess maybe the closest analog we have would be like they're seeing Peter's ghost, right? So it's not definite, I think, that that's what they have in mind, but probable that if people were proclaiming this publicly as uh, this is how it works not long after this, then it was probably a commonly held belief prior to that. And so likely uh, what they're saying to Rhoda is, no, that, that means that Herod has killed Peter. You're, you're seeing Peter's angel. You're seeing his ghost. That means Peter's dead. Like we're not saying you didn't see somebody that looked like Peter. That's definitely not Peter. Herod probably just killed Peter. And uh, she continues, uh, 
excuse me, but uh, the thing that moves the needle finally is that there is actually somebody still outside pounding on the door, like, let me in, they're going to find me. And uh, so Peter walks in, everyone sees him and is blown away to see him. He motions, and the, the Greek here, he does, you know, he does this. All right, all right, everybody quiet down, I'll tell you what happens. Uh, and he relates to them exactly how the Lord had delivered him from prison, right? The series of miracles. Like, I don't know, I was sound asleep, and this angel kicked me in the ribs. I stood up, the chains fell off. He walked me through getting dressed. I, I was asleep. I, I felt like I was sleepwalking. I couldn't do anything myself. Uh, he just kept guiding me, and finally I realized I wasn't dreaming. I'm actually being saved, and every guard we came to was asleep, and then the door swung open, and I was out on the street. It was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I think in chapter 12, there is the miracle that happens, but then there is the sense in which, like, everybody, Peter and the, the church gathered here in Mary's house, like, are struggling to wrap their mind around the grace of God. And I think chapter 12, uh, in that sense, very much uh, makes it clear to us that uh, there are There are spectacular miracles uh, littered through Acts, uh, and there are times in Acts where a miracle, like, it is spectacular, but it seems more expected, and then there are other times in Acts where there's a spectacular miracle that seems entirely unexpected. And uh, even as people might expect God to intervene, like, the, the nature of God's intervention itself is unexpected. And I think, uh, you know, a, a comment I think we probably all need to hear uh, more frequently than we do is that God's grace often appears in absolutely unexpected places, and especially on a morning when you'd be challenged to pray for a neighbor, uh, I would again say to you to expect unexpected expressions of God's grace. Right? If someone were to challenge me uh, to pray for people, there are people uh, that uh, I pray for that seem absolutely close to the grace of Christ, but not yet there. And then there are people that seem like they couldn't be any further from the grace of Christ. I shared the gospel with this person so many times, I think it's incredibly unlikely that they would ever respond positively to me sharing the gospel with them again. And yet, uh, like Acts chapter 12 is a reminder that God's grace does show up in unexpected places, that God has an ability to work in impossible circumstances uh, that demonstrates uh, his supernatural power. And uh, certainly that's uh, evident here when there's a person in prison, but I think it's uh, equally evident in the fact that uh, God brings people who we would perhaps all consider unlikely to see their spiritual need to faith in Christ, and that we should absolutely be praying for uh, praying for the salvation of people, uh, however far we are, uh, however far we think they are from God because God works uh, 
both in the places we expect him to work and in places that we don't expect him to work. And God's grace often appears in unexpected places. And God's grace should never be a surprise to us. Like We should constantly be reminding ourselves that God seems to delight especially in working in unexpected places for his people because it is the clearest demonstration that he is not at all like us. And, you know, as the church with Peter starts to wrap their minds around what's happening, Peter uh, instructs them to tell uh, this to James and the brothers, and then he leaves. And this is another one of those sentences that you might kind of blow past when you're reading an Acts, like, oh, okay, that, that's that, and that's over. But this is actually uh, probably a pretty significant development for the Jerusalem church. Right? Uh, to this point, uh, the apostles had been leading the Jerusalem church, uh, and Peter kind of seems to take a place as uh, the spokesperson for the apostles, or even maybe preeminent among the apostles. Uh, but when he says, uh, all right, tell James what's happened, uh, and then leaves, uh, probably what's happening here is this is kind of Peter's formal handing off of the care of the Jerusalem church to James and the other elders, right? This, this James is not an apostle. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who we'll see again in chapter 15, kind of leading the Jerusalem council. Right? This is probably the point when the apostles hand the church in Jerusalem over to the elders in Jerusalem, the other brothers, and the elders at that point begin leading the Jerusalem church. And we don't really see Peter much again through the book of Acts. Uh, we know from some of Paul's writing, he ends up going to Galatia, he ends up spending some time in Corinth by church tradition, he ends up in Rome, though uh, the Bible doesn't make that clear. But uh, at this point, uh, Peter uh, steps away from uh, the, the, uh, his role as the leader of the Jerusalem church and apparently becomes something of an itinerant missionary, uh, just you know, going around strengthening churches uh, and helping establish churches. Right? So, with Peter's miraculous deliverance, and probably Herod is still very much in control at this point with the situation in Jerusalem being what it is, and Peter not wanting to bring any more heat on the church in Jerusalem, he apparently decides it's time for him to step away from Jerusalem. And uh, then in verse 18, right, we break from the church and see uh, how Herod responds to God's deliverance of Peter, right? Uh, as this becomes more widely known, there's no little disturbance, which I'm sure is an understatement. Or the guards that were assigned to Peter recognize that this is a very big deal, uh, and then probably once Herod becomes aware of what's happened, uh, he makes sure that everybody understands this is a very big deal deal. Right? This is, would be a shame to Herod uh, if his goal was to impress the Sanhedrin by persecuting the church, and then Peter escapes, right? Like exactly the opposite of what Herod intended to happen happens, and so 
Herod instructs the soldiers to search the city. Surely they searched the houses of uh, known believers for Peter, but uh, they aren't able to find him. And so he interrogates the soldiers who were assigned to guard Peter and then orders them to be executed, which would be a pretty common punishment for a soldier at this time who uh, let someone escape. Because probably it was understood that if you let a prisoner escape, uh, you would suffer the punishment that the prisoner was supposed to suffer. And since Peter was going to die, the soldiers are put to death. And uh, after that, uh, he just decides to leave Judea. He goes down to Caesarea, right? He, he leaves Jerusalem, leaves all this behind, and goes to the city where the Roman governors had typically governed from. And then Luke breaks to a separate incident, right? Some time has elapsed and it kind of fills us in on a couple details about why such a large crowd is gathered in Caesarea. Right? Herod had cultivated uh, as the ruler of uh, the kingdom we described last week, there was a regional dispute with Tyre and Sidon, with the cities of Phoenicia. Uh, the, the situation is Caesarea, which is apparently now where Herod has uh, permanently taken up residence, uh, is a major port trading city. Tyre and Sidon would also be major port trading cities. Uh, it's a competition, spirit of competition between Phoenicia and Judea, but Tyre and Sidon both depend on Judea, apparently, for grain. And so Herod apparently broke relations with these Phoenician cities, and they were suffering without the grain of Herod. And these people uh, have uh, been brought to their knees. They want reconciliation with Judea, or they want Judea's grain, and so they're going to go to Herod and do what they need to do in order to appease Herod or set him at ease and get what they want. And so they orchestrate a situation where reconciliation can happen and they can get this food again and the delegation is there. Uh, Luke doesn't give us a lot of details uh, here. Josephus kind of fills in that this was probably a celebration for Claudius's birthday and there's a large crowd gathered and uh, Josephus even goes on to say that Herod was wearing a cloak woven of silver thread that sparkled in the sun, right? Like his appearance was... Uh, impressive. Uh, he gets in front of the crowd, he delivers uh, a speech to the crowd, and the crowd's response, uh, maybe led by delegates from Tyre and Sidon, uh, is very flattering, that, uh, the, that he is divine. He's not a man. They are going to celebrate uh, Herod as if he is divine, and then Luke doesn't uh, make it explicit. He just leads us to assume but Josephus makes it very clear that Herod very much accepted all this flattery. Right? He, didn't, he didn't say, like, oh, everybody, like, okay, yeah, I'm king, but I'm just a man. Like, he was embracing uh, the flattery and the, uh, essentially pur purporting to be uh, divine to this crowd that is gathered, but Luke does tell us exactly, uh, <coughs> excuse me, how the Lord responds. Uh, the Lord sends an avenging angel and strikes him down for accepting uh, this praise as a divine person and uh, goes on to say he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. 
We don't really know what killed him. Josephus says that whatever struck him, it took five days for him to die. I'm sure, five days of agony. Uh, probably some kind of parasite. Uh, he languishes for five days and dies. And this seems like a very uh, strange little incident to include in Acts, right? Because uh, Herod is introduced to us as the persecutor of the church, but Herod doesn't really have anything to do with the church. The, these people from Tyre and Sidon, like there are churches in Tyre and Sidon at this point, but these aren't believers from Tyre and Sidon. Like, why would uh, Luke include this little incident uh, at all? And I think there's probably several reasons. Number one, uh, Luke is uh, trying to help us understand that uh, God is absolutely sovereign. And Herod had intended to disrupt the church in Jerusalem, and uh, God's judgment eventually comes on Herod. That Herod does not escape divine judgment for what he has done to God's people. Uh, number two, the, uh, the story is absolutely an example of what happens to a person who is haughty before the Lord. Uh, that uh, we'll see again several times in Acts, people worship uh, or attempt to worship the apostles for some miracle that the apostles do. And their response is always very quickly, do not worship me as if I'm divine. I'm just a person like you. Uh, but when Herod is uh, told to be divine, whether the crowd really believed that he was divine or was simply trying to flatter him, he accepted that praise. That Herod uh, is absolutely an example of unmitigated pride and the judgment of the Lord falling on the proud person. And I don't think probably... Uh, it's likely that any of us are so proud uh, that we're going to suffer uh, the immediate judgment of a, an avenging angel from the Lord. But uh, I think probably that uh, there are lots of ways uh, where we, we need to be wary that we're not guilty of the sin that Harry, Herod is guilty of to a different degree. Right? Uh, probably uh, when you got dressed this morning, you didn't choose clothes that you thought would make you look the most divine when the sun hit you. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Uh, right? And probably uh, your response to people saying, you must be divine, wouldn't be, well, yeah, actually, I am. Uh, right, uh, but I think we would be uh, silly if we imagined that because we don't do what Herod did, we're not guilty of the same sort of thing that Herod is. And I think probably uh, that's the danger of pride. Like pride is insidious malignant, it, like, it is the worst kind of cancer. Like, it's always lurking in the shadows. It's always growing. Uh, like, it, it is impossible, it seems, to root out. Spurgeon said something like, uh, 
pride, that demon's going to follow me till the day I die, right? Like, that you're, you're never done fighting pride. Uh, and probably you've heard somebody say something along the lines of, like, uh, well, I'm really proud of the spirit of humility that I've cultivated, right? Like, uh, pride is so insidious that we can be proud about the degree to which we're humble, uh, right? Like, pride is awful, and it, it spawns almost any other kind of sin that you can imagine if you let it grow. I think probably, uh, particularly, there are two sorts of pride that uh, we should be wary of, and, and the first is like a, a corporate sort of pride. Uh, right? uh, we were just talking last night about uh, way that thankful to see like the way that the Lord has worked amongst us over the past year incredibly thankful uh, to serve alongside of people who I think are, are firmly committed to the truth and the necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think uh, when that is true for us and that is not true for so many uh, other people who would claim to be Christian or groups of people who would claim to be churches, it is very easy for uh a sort of corporate spirit of pride to develop where uh, like we are thankful that we are faithful and look down on people who are not. And uh, I think that it, it seems to me that like the way things are drifting, uh, there are probably more and more groups of Christians, other churches that uh, are going to make all kinds of compromises uh, as time goes on. Uh, compromises maybe that seem small at first and then compromises that are ultimately attacks on the integrity of the gospel. And uh, I think uh, corporate sort of pride is, is dangerous, uh, number one, because... Uh, Looking at past faithfulness, we can convince ourselves that we don't really need to be all that zealous to guard our future faithfulness, right? That uh, we can let our guard down and ourselves make small compromises that seem insignificant that lead to much larger compromises later. Uh, but also, I think, uh, that, that smug sort of pride that can come when you look at the lack of faithfulness in other people ultimately is corroding the soul. Like corroding our souls as individuals, corroding our witness as a church that uh, we have to, as a people, together, I think, cultivate an ability to honestly and carefully assess faithfulness to the gospel. Like not only for our own sake, but as we're determining who we're going to partner with in ministry, who we're going to work alongside. Uh, but, you know, as, as much as we need to cultivate an ability to think carefully about those things, we need to ensure that we are never, ever gloating over the failures of other people, gloating over uh, the lack of faithfulness of some other church, that absolutely our response, even as we cultivate an ability to think about these things carefully is when we see a lack of faithfulness elsewhere, like our response should always be, 
grief and prayer. Like, uh, but for the grace of God, there go we. And alongside that, I think that uh, an, an individual sort of pride uh, probably is an even greater danger for us. Uh, certainly, always, there's the pride of life, right? That we think that we are the person who matters most in the room, and we act like this life is really all that there is. Like, that is a specter for all of us. But I think uh, amongst faithful Christians, uh, there are, like, uh, sanctified kinds of pride that are especially dangerous as well. Uh, our understanding of the Scripture or our doctrinal precision can become uh, not things that are glorifying to God, but sources of pride, right? Like, I, as a child, I don't know that I ever came in the top 50% of a sword drill, but uh, it always seemed kind of strange. You know what a sword drill is? Okay, uh, right, like, uh, say a verse, and then everybody races to open their Bible, and the person that gets their Bible open to that verse stands up, right, like, uh, I was the worst at those things, uh, but it always seemed strange to me, like, the ways that people would gloat about knowing their Bible better than other people, like, like well, maybe you know where to find things, but maybe you don't understand it, uh, right, like, that, that, we can be proud about knowing Scripture better than other people. Like, that, that's insane. That's clear proof that uh, you can know something and not understand it. Uh, I don't, they're equally true that the, there's uh, sort of pride of ministry, where we think that, like, this kind of ministry can't happen apart from me, or, like, I am really in integral to the success of this ministry. Like, we could list without end ways that pride can express itself. But basically, the bottom line is anytime we put ourselves on the throne or we put ourselves on, in center stage, we are doing exactly what Herod did to one degree or another. And that that kind of pride, uh, it, whether it looks holy or not, uh, and even when it looks holy, like that is the thinnest veneer. That that sort of thing always corrodes your soul. That that sort of thing left unchecked, even if it seems small, even if it's not to the degree of Herod, I think is ultimately the thing that leads a person to make shipwreck of their faith. Right? That we have to be people, uh, take responsibility for ourselves, that we're always watching our own hearts, that uh, that sort of pride doesn't take root, but we also have to be guarding each other's hearts, right? The, the contrast here uh, between uh, the church and Herod is, is abundantly clear, right? Uh, the church doesn't respond perfectly. Like, they seem to kind of disbelieve God did the very thing that God was asking, or they were asking God to do when God does it, uh, right? Like, their response isn't immediately faithful uh, belief that God can do anything. Like they, they struggle to wrap their minds around it for a minute, too. Uh, but Herod is a different sort of creature altogether. And as much contrast as there is between these groups, uh, they aren't entirely uh, insulated from each other 
either. And uh, what is, I think, uh, evident most clearly in the passage is a refrain we should probably be getting used to at this point. The word of God again increases and multiplies. That even as all these circumstances are happening, even as the chapter opens with Herod intent on rooting up the church in Jerusalem uh, to curry favor with others, uh, all circumstances are brought to a head by a sovereign God, and the church still stands. It's not only standing, but it's growing. And, and Luke has, again, abandoned any attempt to even number the church. Like It is increasing and multiplying at such a rate now that uh, simply the summary statement, the church is still growing, is the only way to describe it. Right? That uh, clearly, even as Herod wants to demonstrate his power or his ability or draw honor to himself, that it is God and God alone who is worthy of worship, and it is God who is able to affect all circumstances to accomplish his ends, and his end is the building of Christ's church. And so, uh, you know, from a more uh, broader perspective, you can look at chapter 12, uh, that Herod was a very real threat against the church, and see in the chapter that Herod is absolutely in God's hand. Herod doesn't do anything to the church that God does not allow Herod to do to the church, and when God has had enough, Herod meets his end. And what was true then is equally true today, that whatever threat stands against the church, uh, that whatever threat uh, might frighten us, that it is absolutely in the hand of God, and what was God's purpose then is still God's purpose now. If God's allowing it, he's allowing it for, in some sense, the benefit of his people, and ultimately for the building of Christ's church that there is no circumstance that should terrify us, there is no person who can oppose us, that ultimately God's church will continue to increase and multiply because it is God's church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are indeed sovereign over all things. God, we Thank you that you demonstrate this to us again and again. And yet, Lord, we uh, grieve the fact that it is, um, it is still difficult to believe. As many times as we may have seen your sovereign hand at work, that your sovereign hand will be at work today, tomorrow, and until the end. So, Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, Lord, that simply, uh, not simply uh, to bring about the end that you uh, desire, but God, uh, to work in our present circumstances to bring about that end. God, we know uh, that your name is great. We know that your power is incomprehensible. God, we know that you see the beginning from the end, and Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to become people who trust that uh, in all things, God, 
you are moving uh, us towards Christ-likeness, that you are uh, moving others to Christ, uh, that you are working uh, through your people to accomplish your ends and the building of Christ's bride. God, we pray that uh, this trust would inspire in us uh, greater confidence. God, that, that this truth would move from our minds to our hearts to our hands. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.